whaiā ko te mātauranga hei whītiki te iwi ki Seek ye from the fountain of knowledge, so the people may be uplifted, thrive and prosper. He mihi ati tēnei ki a koutou katoa, no mai piki mai kake mai ki te hōtaka nei a te ahikā. Welcome to Te Ahikā for your fix of everything kaupapa Māori here on Radio New Zealand National. I'm Maraia Rakuraku. Ko Justin Murray, ahau, ko tai mai te kuanga. Spring is in the air, so hopefully it's much warmer where you live now. Coming up in the show... What do you get with three Māori boys? The story of a legendary rugby player, a stirring soundtrack and audiovisual images. The retelling in theatre form of the story of George Nepier. We're talking about the Invincibles tour of 1924. On that tour, um, George Nepier is the only fullback named in the squad. Only played fullback a couple of times, so he's, it's not his regular position. And as a 19-year-old, too, he's really young. The annual Nga Taonga Toei Atiwaka Toei Awards honour Māori for their contribution to Te Ao Māori, the Māori world. Today we'll hear from artist, mum and te reo Māori teacher, Karanga Waimaj. I've come to uh, Tautoko friends before that have received this award. Uh, and every time I've come, I've seen my friends walk across the stage and I've thought, one day, that's going to be me. And one day it was, Karanga Waimash. And tonight's broadcast rounds off with the singer Awanui Reader talking about how he does his own thing musically. That's what's coming up in this edition of Te Ahika. The story goes that George Nepia was on the rail car heading to school at Teote College Hawke's Bay from Nuhaka, but one of his mates convinced him to get off with him instead at Bridge Pa and go to MAC, the Māori Agricultural College, there instead. And it's there that George Nepia's rugby career began. He was to become a Māori All Black and tour to the UK in 1924 as part of the Invincibles team. And it's part of this history that Hone Kauka, Jared Rawiri and Jason Tikare are bringing to life in a theatre play, I, George Nepia. And being Rugby World Cup 2011, of course we all have opinions on, well, the Rugby World Cup and the All Blacks' chances. I, George Nepia. It's based on the book? Uh, yes, it's based on his autobiography. Yeah. Um, Hone Koka, our writer, he, uh, uh, he pretty much took uh, his story based from the book and um, uh, expanded it and theatricalised it, uh, wrote it into dialogue. Uh, most of it, I'd say about 95 to 90% of it's uh, pretty much true to the book, but um, always when you're dramatising something, you want a little bit of freedom in order to explore things, but at the same time, you know, George Nipia isn't just anybody, he's someone special, especially for whānau, for uh, people of his iwi, for Māori in general. So uh, Hune had to walk a fine line of, of how, to, how to explore deeper and further and maybe reveal new things about this man that aren't in the book, but stays true to his true story and, and to his whānau, really, because they're the ones who have given us permission to tell the story. And the last thing you want to do is step on those toes. It carries a lot of responsibility, eh? Oh, yeah. But, I mean, why George Nepia? Well, um, he's a great man. Um, as we explore his story and um, through, through the play, uh, you learn that um, 
one of the things that really stand out for me is um, what makes a champion isn't so much his success, but his failures and how he deals with them. Um, you're talking about a man who admits he was afraid to tackle when he first started playing rugby. He admits he was rubbish at it for a long time. Um, and yet this man was known as a rock on defence when he became an all-black. And so it was through his um, failure to tackle that he learned how to tackle. It's funny, um, I've, I draw parallel lines between his story and the story of Michael Jordan. Uh, the basketball player, who's a very similar background of not being able to make his high school basketball team and yet going on to become the greatest player of all time. I think there's also a thing about the work ethic, though, as well, that's a perception. I think in the modern times, we perceive that people um, has, have God-given talents, that uh, these things just come to them, that uh, they're just in the right place at the right time, that it's a bit of luck. And sometimes I think, and the media tend to... Tend to uh, dwell on that too of people taking their opportunities what they forget is the amount of hard work often that's put in behind the scenes and in order to get the person into that place of, 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 of opportunity just to get to that place takes a lot of hard work and sometimes we I think we forget that in the modern world uh, 1924 was when he was an all-black so um, then but he was only 19 so he was only really starting to become a man and um, so much of his legend grew after the event after that tour um, some of the, again, some of those astute movements from, from some of the Māori leader, leaders back then, um, you know, spotted George, saw what he did on that tour, and, um, you know, Sapirananga, for example, you know, took him under his wing, thought, you know, in fact, married him into his iwi, you know, really smart move, and he just, you know, and I think showed George in, in, in the Sapirananga way, a way that he can take the best out of what's, what happened in that, in that tour for him, but for Māori in general, of the way he can really show a way forward of becoming a hero. So tell me about the tour that you're talking about. Okay, we're talking about the Invincibles tour of 1924, uh, the second official tour to, to uh, the, the, the home country, as it was called back then. Um, so uh, on that tour, um, George Nepia is the only fullback named in the squad. Uh, he's only played fullback a couple of times, so he's, it's not his regular position. And as a 19-year-old, too, he's really young, and so he's on this huge lifetime opportunity journey to in 1924, in which they play Wales, <laughs> England, uh, France... Uh, in Ireland, um, but not only does he play every test, he plays every single match of the tour, and they never lost a game. So it um, tells you a lot about the team, but also as him as a rock on defence. You know, this is how they acquired the name, the Invincibles. Yes, was that not losing a game on tour? So whereabouts in the story, you've had to compress his life story into the theatrical production, I, George Nepia. When do we meet George Nepia? When do we meet the character? We meet him um, in two kind of parts of his life, I guess. Actor, Jared Lawadi. So we meet a young George Nepia who's preparing to take this big journey overseas um, to the UK, and then we also meet him as an older, wiser um, gentleman. So... Um, 
reflecting on on his life. Um, I think that's all I want to give away. <laughs> yeah, I'd say about uh, almost sixty to seventy five percent of the play takes place on the boat on the journey over there. Uh, it really is about um, the young man coming of age, of him finding his feet, of his um, his you know little bit muka muka for being away from home and and um, unsure about what the future holds ahead of him and and what what will happen on this tour. A little bit worried about you know the pressure on on himself. Uh, and then I think Hone has done a beautiful thing within his writing, and that's uh, the older George he's, he's brought in and um, enabled us to see the the, the humble older gentleman, the the, the George, yeah, the George uh, that Nebia. he becomes. Yeah, yeah that he With becomes. the lessons he's learned. Exactly, yeah, yeah, and so therefore he's able to reflect. But um, he's done a clever little thing in that, given older George his own journey to go on, mm. that is it's just it has just as much. Mamai and, and, and fear and worry yeah. that and the um, journey yeah. to the UK was for when him for him when he was nineteen, and um, the other thing Horney has allowed him to do is the older George is, George is to comment on the modern day of, of these times mm. of the current All Blacks yeah. of the All Blacks who have played since he's passed, who he's been able to kind of what he would say if he could see the modern game today. If he could I see think the you just need players. to read most newspaper columns with. Comments from various people about what they've got to say about modern day rugby, eh? Yeah, yeah. yes. And um, uh, even if you hear some of the, because um, George was a writer himself, so even if you uh, if you ever got hold of some of the articles he wrote or uh, even the comments he made to the media over his lifetime, he was very he was he had very strong opinions on the on mm. the game of rugby mm. and the way it should be played, yeah. um, and it's really lovely to see. But also. Really strong opinions on those 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 kind of darker times of rugby that uh, sometimes we you know don't celebrate so much you know the the Springbok tours and the effect that had for Māori and Māori opportunity too because you got to remember that in the modern rugby game we play you know so many tests in one year against so many countries but back in nine, in the 1920s 1910s 1930s you know a tour came around very you know one tour a year if you're mm -hmm. lucky so. As a Māori rugby player in your prime, if the tour that happened to happen when you were in your prime was was a tour to South Africa, you never got to be an All Black. So mm. you know, the, those people forget that's the opportunity that existed for those people to be All Blacks. There wasn't the Tri Nation Tests. There wasn't the the Tests every year. They were, they were you know scheduled and things. So if you just happened to hit your peak, not when there was a tour or when there was a tour to a South Africa. You never became an All Black. So even back then, Jason, the ultimate is to be an All Black. Definitely, I'd yeah, say that so. was, yeah, that, that'd be the ultimate goal for for. Um, it was a, uh, especially after the. So this was the second tour touring team to the UK. The first touring team uh, came back with one defeat, um, having beaten everyone um, except for a controversial loss to uh, Wales. Yes. Um, so I guess Wales was the power back then uh, for for the home nations, and um, we were these um, upstart kind of um, little colonial islands that had taken this game and and kind of just changed it. We we played our own brand of rugby, so uh, yeah, it became an identity way all the way back then when when the game was just starting out. So I think. We all embraced it, you know, not just um, Māori, but also, you know, colonials and, and the Europeans. 
New Zealanders as well. So. I agree. I think the pioneers of the time, it was what defined us as a country, for the, especially for those pioneers, you know, because we were still trying really hard to be a little Britain, a little mm. England at the time. So I think for the pioneers of that time, it really defined a difference between us and the home country mm. of going, we actually... Us pioneers are, are better at this game than, yeah. than you than you are where, where it's come from, and it's because I mean even George talks about it. It was the the top two inches. It was the way the pioneers thought about the game. We approached it with a whole different philosophy, a whole different idea that took the English off guard mm. when the originals went, and then and then and then nineteen twenty four when the when the um, Invincibles went, it, it just uh, defined for the nation a difference between us and them, and it was something to be proud of, yeah. of all of us, Māori, Pākehā, whoever, you know, it, it made us something to be proud of and to define us from from the home country, really. So I guess what you're saying is that it was stretching out boundaries of identity for them as oh. well as for the team that came from here. Aye. Because rugby was very much an upper-class sport, wasn't it, in England? Yes, and arguably you could say it still is. <laughs> still is. is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, um, this is a, something that I read that George had written um, after a match, I think it was against Oxford or someone, um, him being um, told by a journalist um, to not worry so much about winning. <laughs> <laughs> and he thought it was the most ridiculous thing he'd heard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, they were there to beat the home country, obviously, because of lots of things, but... Um, for them, it was still a gentlemanly um, sport. Um, different for Wales, Wales embraced was embraced the by the working class yeah. and the competition of and the miners. So they were, they yeah. were in there. Whereas I think that was again was the difference. With I mean, I think that's why the All Blacks suffer from at the moment is that you know it's a culture of winning. Yeah. You must win, and it's a diff- sure. I, that's I, I think Graham Henry's ever mentioned. It. It's a difference between um, it's the way All Blacks the All Blacks played ev- all the time. We always we expected to win, and then other countries don't get to that mind state till they come to the World Cup of we must win. Mm. But the All Blacks are like that all the time. You know, the, the pressure on them is is constant. Mm. You must win because that's been the culture that settled right from the start from nineteen ninety five. That's unnatural. <laughs> yeah, but I've, they've maintained it pretty well. But it's it is it's a it's a, it's a imagine high bar maintaining to set. that state that state all the time and yeah. that yeah. that level of pressure. Yeah, I, that's I, I, he. Um, Hone does a really good job of um, commenting on that and and um, putting, you know, using older George to to comment on that and suggesting that we know, you know, we 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 have this pressure on them, making making us all aware that we do have this pressure on them, and that we should just um, try and embrace them a little bit. I guess it's kind of a nod towards. Uh, what, what's happening? Yeah, I think though as well, the character accepts it though as well. Yeah. I mean, he he it's that thing. Right. He had to deal with that pressure, and he dealt with it the way he did. And so the challenge is out there for the for the for the other young men to come through and do the same. Okay, so all three of us were brought up here in Aotearoa, right. so we have had rugby in our lives, <laughs> our whole lives. I mean, does have you learned anything new from being involved in this project? Uh, well, I'm not sure, actually. Yeah, I've, I definitely have. But when it comes to rugby, I've learned a whole lot more from doing this project. I mean, if you look at the game, the game of rugby in 1924 compared to the modern game, they're completely different. They're, you know, the role of fullback is completely different. So, 
um, and you know, as a of course a New Zealander who played rugby growing up, um, it took me a long time in order for me to get my head ar- around the way rugby was back then. But I think what sums it up for me from what I learnt uh, about that time is the. Uh, so how many was it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven man scrum that they had back then. Because the New Zealanders realised that their scrummaging was, was their, their efficient scrummaging was better than, than the Northern Hemisphere, that they could they had a two man front row, three man second row and two at the back, and that was enough to hold an eight man scrum. So they had one forward left over who could hang around on the side. And the English were going, You're cheating, you're cheating and we're like, No, we're smart. <laughs> and you know that sums it up for me about rugby. We, we we think about it in a different way. We think about ways in which we can improve the game, in which we can make the rules work for us. And that's what I think stands stood our country out from from all others. Is mm. is that philosophy of let's think outside the square? Number eight fencing wire mentality. Let's there's a problem. Let's figure it out. Let's let's figure a way to make that problem work for us. And I think as well that's what makes New Zealand theatre in that realm as well. We think about those problems and make them work for us as opposed to vice versa. So has that spilled over into how you've handled the project yourselves? Because you're both mates. Jason, you've taken on the director role and Jared, you're you're the actor. I mean, how how has that (coughs) flowed on into your own relationship and how you've... Oh, well, it's just... It's a reconnecting. It's Mm. it's been a while since we um, have... um, you know, work together, and um, it's just been great. You know, because because of where we are in our stages of life as well, we've we've, we've both shifted since we we last yes. got together. Um, yeah, we're and, not um, students now. Yeah, we're not students, <laughs> and, and uh, we're not playing. Um, you know, young people. Although I am playing a nineteen-year-old. Thank you. Um, uh, you know, and and we we've both become parents now, and and that's a huge part of this piece as well. Mm. Um, you know, George says that he he hopes that he's a been a better father than he was a rugby player you know and mm-hmm. and um that really has um yeah really open opened me up and and I think same for Jason as well just to realize you know that the humanity of this man mm-hmm. you know got to admit the trust between us has really helped through the process um it was I was really lucky with this piece i mean you say you're making a play about George Nepia Almost every male Maori actor in the country is keen to play that role. Yes. So you know, we, we had including yourself. Oh yeah. <laughs> although I think I was just honoured to be asked to direct it. I was yeah. so happy. I was just, you know, and he's a great man. So even casting was it was always going to be a bit tricky. And you know, we had some really really well known actors keen to do it as well. So, um, but for me, in the end, I, as a first time director, I I know I needed someone who trusted me. Who would who would go somewhere that I would direct them to go and would trust me that it, that it would be good? I always had a number one choice, and um, I was glad I got that. Number oh, one choice. shucks! <laughs> so, Jason, you're a radio drama producer. Tell me some of the skills that you're able to transfer over from that job into this job. Wow. Um, or was it different? Well, yeah, it is. It is quite different. I mean, I find with radio drama often uh, it's a lot more like film in that you're just trying to get the actor to give you that performance once, and then you've captured it. You've captured it with the with the recording device or with the camera, and so you can move on. So you you know you're working a lot more kind of in the moment for right now. Whereas I think 
with theatre, there's a lot more chance to explore, to, to, to find the right way, to find the right delivery, to find what's going to work best for this stage, for this moment, for this light, for this story, for this actor. You know, there's all of these things. And the other thing is, uh, with theatre, at some point you've got to be able to let that actor go and do the show themselves. So it really is a lot more about helping them get to that place um, so that they can go, so you can let them go and, and they can do that. I mean, you do this, and that's where the similar, similarity is, sorry, between radio drama is probably is, is that in an essence you do the same thing in the studio. You try, you try to allow, try to give the actor what they need in order for them to give you that performance that you want. But once you've got it, you can move on. Whereas in theatre, they've got to recreate it themselves night after night after night. So it's about mapping that journey so well that you can let them go and, and know that they're going to be fine. And, I mean, it's that thing. I, I know he's going to be fine. I know he's a great performer. But I need him to be confident and know himself that it's great. It's nothing. And being an actor myself, I know this. There's nothing worse than going out and having question marks over your own product about what you're about to perform for yourself as a performer. So for me, if he has no question marks on that opening night and knows what he's got in front of him and sees the mountain, sees the challenge, because it's always a challenge, but feels like it's within his grasp, then I know I've done my job. I, um, I, th I think the biggest thing I've noticed with um, Jason um, in terms of his um, recent work um, with with radio is, is his ear is so attuned um, to to the words um, that are being spoken and, and and the intention of them. He really he really understands the musicality now, um, and it's um, yeah it's amazing it's amazing you know for him for to see you know <laughs> to see him um, head down kind of eyes closed go and I'm, I'm going what's going on there. Um, but he's actually listening to the musicality of the words, and and he's pick, his ears really strong now. It's um it's amazing actually to see. Uh, yeah, oh, it's funny. It's so, it's something I've seen other directors do. I mean, Nat Lees is, is one I've seen who yeah. often closes his eyes and listens. And I I Jonathan actually never intended well. to do that myself, but it's oh, now that you say it, I I, yeah. I remember doing it, and it's that thing I I'm going. Wow, I always thought, you know, especially with someone like Nat Lees, it's like a Jedi Master kind of a, at work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and it's, I never intended it to be that way, but, I, yeah, I realised exactly you're right. That's yeah. what is and what I'm doing. I'm listening for those words and their intentions because it's, it's through the air in which you can really tell when – and that's what I discovered as a radio – when I started working in radio, um, especially in, in drama, mm. was that vocally – you can hear when someone's hesitating or when they're just not in that right moment, and that's what gives it away. And that's why I think radio performance for radio is is a really hard medium because vocally you've got to be right there and therefore mentally, emotionally, you've got to be right there. Physically, you, you can get away with a lot because people can't see you. You can have your script in front of you, but vocally and mentally and emotionally, you've got to be right, right there with the character. Otherwise... It doesn't doesn't come out as true, and I suppose that's that's my first process in theatre is making sure that all those intentions are true mm. and and at least sound real, sound like they're coming from a real place. But this play isn't just all about dialogue, though, is it? There's also imagery. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's. There, yeah. I mean. Well. I mean, because the um, the dialogue, you know, a lot of the dialogue, um, because of the the. Kind of the poetic and lyrical nature of um, George's personal, the way he wrote, um, Horner's really taken that on and 
and made made the words quite poetic. So um, there's so many images that you know the big challenge that Jay had, Jason um, set up for us was was to be able to um, push beyond um, just the storytelling just the aspects storytelling. because there's yeah. a story going on yeah. and images that play out and and really strong the themes within the, the piece as well. So we've we've looked at um, creating a physical dialogue as much as the as much as the spoken dialogue, I guess. Uh, the goal for this production, um, this story of Igel Genepia, when working with Tawata Productions, um, was to come up with the piece that we could tour to Marae. That was the original idea of this of this piece. Sure, we've gone a bit fancy with this first time out in theatres and with lights and things, but the whole idea at the end of the day is that we can roll up at a Marae with this show, set up our projectors, give the actor a little bit of space of, for, of, of, of floor in the whare and just tell the story of this lovely man because it deserves to be shared, especially amongst our people, just to remind ourselves of those heroes and, and of that mahi they put in in order to, to get there to hopefully inspire the next generation, especially George's story. I mean, a 19-year-old from Nuhaka yeah. in 1924 on a boat as an all-black, the only all, full-back, and playing in the Invincibles tour every game and, and nailing it. Mm. Yeah. Gives hope to all, gives hope to all those nineteen year olds from Titiko. Aye, well it yeah. it it, show, it shows them <laughs> yeah. that, you know, you can come from very humble backgrounds and do mm. great things. You know, it, it, it's, it shouldn't stop you. It shouldn't stop any of us from achieving greatness. Mm. It's just we've got to set ourselves that challenge. Hi, that's right, Jason Takari. Modern day bromance right there, Farno Ma. Kia ora, Jared Rawiri, who plays George Nepia in the play I, George Nepia, and director Jason Takari. It ends its run at Wellington Circa Theatre this coming Friday. So make sure, go check it out. And if you'd like more information about the production, have a look at our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. I'm Justine Murray. I'm Maraya Rakuraku, and this is Te Ahika. At the start of the show, we opened with the whakatauki, or proverbial saying, Whaia ko te tauranga, hei fi tiki tewi, kia toa ai. Seeky from the Fountain of Knowledge, so the people may be uplifted, thrive and prosper. Basically, the saying encourages us all to keep on learning. Nā karehipi a te wakatoi, the scholarships of te wakatoi, form one of the categories for the annual Nā taongatoi a te wakatoi, celebrating our people. That include kaumātua, but let's not get ahead of ourselves, Justine. You're going to have to listen to upcoming te ahikā for those kaumātua, who were honoured last weekend at the Nā taongatoi a te wakatoi. But first, we have the young ones. Aida, she's an artist, a mum and a te reo Māori teacher. Basically, she is one pretty talented wahine. Justine Met, Maniopoto, Karangawai Marsh. Ko Karangawai Marsh, to Kuingwa. Noroto a Haiwi Ngarohe o Ngati Maniopoto o Ngati Raukawakite Tonga o Te Aroa. He hononga no oku ke Ngati Parau Ngati Kahunganu Ngaitai Ano Hoki. Tēnā koe. Kia ora, Karangawai. First of all, let's um, talk about you. you. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Where did you go mm-hmm. to school? So I was brought up in um, Kirikiriroa in Hamilton, uh, moved to Rotorua to study, then moved to Otaki to study. Um, then, oh, sorry, I moved back to Hamilton to continue my studies from Otaki, uh, then to Rotorua to pursue my degree, um, and now in Palmerston, uh, moved to Palmerston to, to uh, 
uh, do my degree in Māori visual arts, and I'm still there um, on my last year of the Masters. When I was growing up, my mum um, had just, you know, at, at, at that time, um, the whānau couldn't survive on one income, so mum was working, and I'd end up um, being left with with queer or <laughs> or aunties, um, and they all knitted and did crochet and all that sort of stuff, so I uh, just picked it all up and, um, yeah, and just went from there. I've always, you know, uh, in my maths books and... and um, English books. I had more pictures than than writing. And all that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Karangawa, you talked about your, um, you know, being around your your aunties and your queer, and in particular, you learned raranga and and uh, fatu techniques from some of the queer that you grew up with. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little more about that? Um, so, when I was younger, I was still in primary school. My auntie um, showed me, well, my my auntie showed me how to. Oh, I can't remember what it was she was doing, but I saw her weaving and just sat next to her and just picked it up really quickly. Uh, and then she would take me along to a lot of her wānanga, her weaving wānanga, even though the um, the, the kayako at the time, or in the queer, would um, constantly tell um, their members not to take their tamariki. Of course, my auntie says, no, 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 you're different, you're still Why coming. Why did they say that? Oh, most of the tamariki were just hautatu and, you know, couldn't really sit down for long periods of time. As, I mean, so my kids are like that. Um, but um, I just loved it. I'd get engrossed. Uh, I'd pick up harakiki and would just keep going and going and going until I'd finished what I'd started. Um, you know, as at most hui, you don't sleep for two or three days. You're just so... Um, engrossed in what you're doing and uh, soaking up the energy. Um, my kuia also taught me um, to to tāniko. Um, actually, she taught me to to tāniko when she was going blind, so it was all by feel. Wow. Um, mm. She was when she had some sight, or she had a little bit of sight, but she she couldn't see what it was that she was doing. Um, but yeah, so it was all feel. Um, and um, yeah, well, but my auntie, you know, she she really um, saw something in me, maybe, and um, just really, really pushed pushed me to learn te raranga and te fatu, um, fatu korowai with muka, preparing all of that, all of um, the resources that that were needed. Um, hmm. What age did you learn how to cut harakiki? I can't remember. Maybe eight. I I, I I can't remember. I don't know. I, I, it's I've just known it for so long. It's just you know you just you, you just know how to to cut how to kick it and how not to cut it. Wow. <laughs> so when you see someone doing it, um, kind of hacking away at it, yeah, it just kind of grinds me up. But um, yeah, I, I'm not too sure how old I was. Have you ever experienced that where people have been? Cutting harakiki wrong, and have you yes. what, what, what have you said anything? Or? Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quite often, it's um, it, 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 it's caretakers, for instance, um, caretakers of. Uh, n- when I say caretakers, not kaitiaki, um, maintenance people. They just kind of go in and cut it, just hack away at it with some kind of machine. 
Um, and usually if I see that happening, um, yeah, I can't not just just watch them, you know, wrecking harakeke. If it's harakeke, well, actually, if it's harakeke that um, has no use to me, <laughs> has no use. If it's just the pretty stuff that, that's, that can't be woven, then... Uh, it doesn't grind me up so much. It, it annoys me. But um, if it's harakeke that is really good, if it's good harakeke, then, yeah, that, that ticks me off. Mm. Really ticks me off. But um, mm. So, Karangawa, you're currently in your uh, second year of a master's degree in Māori Visual Arts at Messi University. Mm-hmm. You hold a Bachelor of Māori Immersion Teaching from 2005 and a Bachelor of Māori Visual Arts, mm-hmm. first class honours, 2009. You know, what has this Matauranga education, how has it helped your, I suppose, stance in te ao Māori? So before I moved to Palmerston North, uh, my, my, my view of Māori art, um, I thought at the time, was, was quite broad. Um, but now that I look back at it, it was, I had a very narrow um, view of, of what is Māori art. Um, and that's pretty much why I moved to Palmerston to study under uh, Professor Bob Yonke. I, I felt that I needed to um, open my eyes to, to contemporary Māori art. Um, in, um, in the last seven years, seven years, uh, m- my art has changed. Um, in the past, the kaupapa was, was kind of around te reo Māori, um, about what I was doing at the time. Now it's more about um, getting a message out there um, about where Aureo is at the moment um, and encouraging people to look at these issues or, or you know, to question these issues, not necessarily about um, pushing people to learn the reo or to speak the reo, but it's about uh, engaging with an audience and um, getting them to to uh, to ask questions. Why why is our deal not um, not progressing the way it should be? What can we do? Um, yeah, kind of. Hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. And so, would you say that your art, so your studies of theory and your studies of of the arts, it's probably natural for you to combine those two? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. absolutely. That it's just the um, the art that I'm producing is very different to um, the art that I was producing before I started Massey, at Massey. Uh, and it comes with growing as a person. Yeah, and yeah. And I'm 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 happy with the way I'm going at the moment. I mean, when it comes to um, Fatu Korowai or um, yeah, especially Korowai, um, that that. Um, is definitely a, a huarahi that I want to go back to. Um, absolutely want to fatu and a few more korowai. And with every korowai, you learn uh, so much. Um, so how many korowai have you have you made? Uh, a korowai tuturu, just one. Uh, the other aren't necessarily korowai. They're um, kākahu. Uh, from what are the differences? What's a, what's a ka'a korowai tuturu? Muka 
with uh, the mucca being the um, the flax fibre, the fibre from the flax, um, with hookah uh, hookah or tassels, uh, and and feathers here and there, um, and it looks like a kōrowai or a kākahu. The um, the other pieces that I've created are quite contemporary were I suppose contemporary at the time. They're not so contemporary now. Um, bodices, for instance, um, they were all um, uh, uh, muka, but I used contemporary dyes, um, mm. and yeah, um, I don't I don't know how many I've done. I don't know. I don't keep count. I just kind of just chuck them up and. And flick them off to my mother, <laughs> and she looks after them. Well, okay. um, uh, quite a few of them, I, I, I'm hoping they're still with her. I don't really keep an eye on them. Terrible. For <laughs> <laughs> Karangawa, you are the recipient of Ngā Karahipia Te Wakatoi, the Te Wakatoi Scholarships. What does this tohu um, mean to you? Um, that's a really hard question to answer. I've... I've come to uh, Tautoko friends before that have received this award uh, and every time I've come I've seen my friends walk across the stage and I've thought one day that's going to be me, mm. that's going to be me, one day that's going to be me. Of course this year I never thought that it would be me. I never thought that um, that I had um, a portfolio good enough to receive or to even be... Um, uh, to be chosen or to, to even be even be considered to um, receive this award, so um, I'm I'm at the moment feeling very fukama, mm. um, but really um, I don't want to um, blow my own trumpet, but proud. Hi, Tinaqui. Karangawai Marshtira, one of the recipients of the 2011 Te Waka Toy Scholarships. We've got some lovely photos posted up. Head to radionz.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justin Murray, and this is Te Ahika. Since the mid-90s, we've witnessed from the sidelines these boys, well, grow up. The band Nisha Mystic blends hip-hop, pop and R&B music with a Polynesian twist. The six members of the group met while they were at school and since then they've produced four albums together, travelled all over the place, both here and overseas, and in 2010 released their final album, 99 AD. A month ago, lead vocalist Te Awanui Rita released a solo EP, Native Intel. Like I'm trapping these chains, losing track of the days. Take a look at the mirror, don't recognize the face. Uh, kia ora whana, ko te awanui ahau, no ngaitarangi me ngā pōtuki me te aroa. Kia ora. Kia ora, awanui. So my first question is, how's it going, man? How's it going? How's the solo thing going? It's going all good. It's uh, busy, it's different, obviously coming off Nisian, but I'm enjoying the difference. And yeah, so far so good. It's still exciting to me. I've just released uh, my EP, my bilingual EP, Native Intel, and I was really stoked about that because it made it into the charts. It made it to the top 40. Uh, so that was awesome. Awesome for Te Mangai Pahu as well because they were the people that uh, supported me and funded me with that EP. And now it's on to the English stuff. And 
Oh man, I'm away. <laughs> you're away. You're away flying. Now we got we got to talk about obviously. You know, you spent so many of your. You grew up really. Yeah. Um, through your school years and for the last best part of ten plus years. So how? I mean, you know. Um, I suppose emotionally, uh, work-wise, uh, writing, producing. How is it different to uh, to not being with Nijan? Well, I think the most obvious point of difference is the fact that the boys aren't really there. So that's that's a major change. Um, through that, I'm able to finish the whole song by myself, I guess. Um, and in saying that, you know, when I'm stuck, I can't just call on one of them to come and fill the space. So um, that's been a major point of difference. In saying that, though, I still have David Artai, who is our guitarist. He's my main wingman when it comes to music. So very similar to the way Nijian would write. It would start with me and David making the song and coming up with the idea and making the instrumental. Um, and to be honest, that's still the same process with the solo stuff. Uh, now I'm just able to grab beats from other people. Yep. And um, it's, I guess it's a lot more easier to manage um, in terms of not having as many numbers and uh, the decision-making process being a lot faster because basically it just comes down to me. So um, there are a lot of disadvantages and, and advantages, but um, as I said before, you know, it's, it's, it's neither better or worse, it's just different and I'm enjoying that difference. And I suppose, you know, with, with the boys not being, um, well, with you going solo, um, mm. you're right, you, you can just say um, yes. I mean, have you become used to it? It's only been this year, really. I mean, you guys dropped your album, you did your final mid-year tour, um, Nisha Mystic, this year, didn't you? Uh, yeah, well, I guess, you know, even with Nisha, it was a very easy process in terms of making decisions. It's just that I had to check with everybody yep. before we actually decided. So, you know, as you know, as I was saying before, it's just very easy for me to just go, actually, this is what I'm doing, <laughs> and, uh, and get on with it. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, it's a lot faster. And well, have you? So you've been in, obviously enjoying the ride so far. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think it's like life in general. You know, it's it's what you make of it. Uh, there are going to be opportunities that come along, and you just have to prepare yourself the best you can uh, to take advantage of them. And you know, I'm sure you know if I keep working hard and at doing something that I love, like music, then um, those opportunities will come, and and they have come. So um, I'm just taking nothing for granted. And, you know, aside from the music thing, you boys were, I mean, you, some of you went to school together, so you're pretty tight, you know, away from the oh, music Oh, yeah, yeah, we were boys before we yeah. were a band, so um, nothing's changed. Like, I still see the boys every week, pretty much. <laughs> uh, we actually just don't do anything in Aotearoa, but we still gig overseas almost every second weekend. So it's uh, our focus is over there for Nijin, uh basically because there's just more putea over there, mm. and uh, it's brand new for people offshore. So, it, you know, it's also... And, and, and that motivates us because, you know, when, after you do it for a long time, you know, 10 years in the game and you know how hard the struggle is, it's actually nice to be told you're awesome. <laughs> so, um, you're awesome, Awa. You're awesome. And sometimes that's all you need to just be motivated again for the music because, you know, you can find uh, times where you're just basically getting writer's block or, you know, you're just not into it anymore, your priorities change. So it's nice for the boys to have that motivation again, and it just happens to be offshore, you know. It's it's a bit more exciting to catch a flight to Melbourne or Brisbane or Sydney than it is to catch one to Taranga sometimes, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah.
Native Intel is your solo EP, an EP uh, which is where the album features five tracks. Yeah, one, right. one of the favourites, oh, I've got to say, is uh, Macy Dicker and you, If Things Were Different. Can you tell us about that song? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I've always been a big fan of Macy. She's got a beautiful voice. She's a beautiful woman. And uh, it was an honour to be able to write a song with her and work on a song. Uh, together and uh, obviously yeah it's it's a lot of people's favorite song uh, a beautiful love ballad just talking about two people uh, having feelings for each other knowing that they they should be together but they're already with someone else so me and Macy kind of explore that relationship and uh, kind of understand and well we have to accept that we're with other people so mm. we will wait till we die <laughs> to be with each other in the next life wow it's pretty deep yeah, well, you know, I think love songs should be like that. So, and it's obviously a very Māori perspective, and, yeah, man, she did so well, and, you know, it's, it was nice to, to, you know, just feature on a song with her. So she, and, she, oh, man, she killed it. She sounds awesome. Oh, yeah, no, and that was a definitely a really nice um, a duet with uh, yourself and, and Macy. Now, the, the uh, EP Native Intel, if people want to get it at their nearest outlet, they probably they most probably can't because there was only a limited n- a number yeah. of, um, of copies made. Well, yeah, I wanted to give people the option, first of all, because a lot of releases nowadays are just online. So I wanted to give our people an experience. You know, I went really hard out with the physical copy. Uh, there might be a couple around, but I don't yep. think there's too many. It's sold pretty well, so I'm, I'm really fortunate that that happened. Um, if you can get your hands on it, good luck to you and well done. Um, but if you can't, then uh, the digital copy is there on, on all the online distributors, so iTunes, Amplifier, um, Mighty Ape, and all those guys. So, yeah, no, it's, it's wicked. Why did you choose Viper Room as the uh, first single to, well, it was the first single with you and Maitreya to launch? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, the reason why I chose that song, uh, because people wouldn't expect something like that from me, I think. Especially coming off Nisian, uh, yeah. they're used to the very pop, upbeat songs. And I wanted to shock them a little bit. And uh, the beat is made by a guy called Yarel. He's a young Pacific Island beat maker up here in Auckland. And I got my boy Maitreya on it. He's, he's a Pākehā fella, but he speaks fluent Māori. So I just thought the concept of that song and the people around it was bigger than putting out a pop song that would automatically do well. And Viper Room itself, the co-papa is good. So Viper Room is a metaphor for addiction and people dealing with addiction. And that doesn't have to be necessarily drugs or alcohol. It could be anything. It could be work. It could be women. could be anything. Gambling. And so basically I wanted to explore someone's battle with that, with that addiction with themselves and, and how they overcome that. And yeah, and I just thought it challenged me not only as a songwriter but as a listener as well because, again, it's not something I would typically write. It's not a beat that I would typically choose, but I thought it, yeah, it just challenged me. And, and it did all right, actually, and, and the video was dope and yum. Yeah. <laughs> now the EP um, is also um, bilingual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, I, again, the whole point of making this EP was the fact that it was bilingual. Um, I was very fortunate that Te Wangai Pahu supported me with that, had faith in me and gave me some money to basically give it a good go. Um, I wanted to lift the level of production, songwriting, uh, delivery on a commercial sense. And I, th- I think I did that. And I'm, I hope it's a benchmark for our up-and-coming songwriters to see that, you know, they can do it, it's okay to write a Māori, and it can do well. I mean, when you look at it, it hit the top 40 charts in New Zealand. So, look, if I can do it, you can do it.
Reader talking about his latest solo EP, Native Intel. Anaira a Awanui, anno with this week's Fakatoki. Faya Kotemata Uranga he fitsikite iwi kia toa ai. Seek ye from the fountain of knowledge so the people may be uplifted, thrive and prosper. This Fakatoki to me means that the benefits of learning go beyond just yourself. Because through your learning, you will basically inspire others. So yeah, learn as much as you can. Kia ora. Kia ora, Wanui. Next week, Mariah is with Suhirini Moko Mead. It hadn't been standing for very long uh, when the government uh, demanded it and wanted it to be uh, uprooted and taken away to Australia. And then it began a whole series of, of journeys from then on. And people have often asked us, well, why did you, Ngāchiawa, agree uh, for your whare to be pulled down and taken away? I mean, that is a very drastic thing to do, you know, to a chipuna whare. And we said, well, if you've been through Araupatu, you've been through an invasion, your people have been thrown in jail, and a few of them have been executed, what would you say? And that was the position that Ngāchewa was in. So it is said that we agreed you know, to the whare being taken. So it was taken and went to Sydney. It went to Melbourne. There it was shipped to London, to the South Kensington, South Kensington Museum, and the Royal Victorian Albert Museum. It was there for about 40 years and was shown at the uh, uh, big Wembley exhibition in 1924. And that's when one of the wishes of the original builders of that whare uh, came to pass because when it was built, one of the ideas was that if the Queen of England ever came to New, to New Zealand and visited Fakatane, she could sleep in that whare. And that was interpreted by the government as Ngāchiawa gifting the whare to them, but that wasn't the idea at all. It was, in a sense, dedicated to the Queen, but for when she came to Fakatane, that's where she could stay. Well, when the house was put up at Wembley in London, the then king and queen visited the whare, and that was King George V and Queen Mary, long before your time. (laughs) (laughs) And And just a little bit of news. (laughs) (laughs) He's talking about another historical moment in the life of the whare mātātua that reopens on Ngātiawa iwi soil next weekend. And I'm with musician Seth Harpu, who talks about his latest album. And don't forget, we're profiling yet another Ngātanga Toi Atuaka Toi scholarship recipient. It's the turn of Tai Kirikiri.
He mehi tēnei ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki ki ngā kai rā wiki wiki mihini, ngā mehi. Hoki mai hei tērā rā tapu, mai te whānau a te ahi kā ki a koutou katoa. Mauri ora.